Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 8, 21 through 59. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen. 
because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Well, good morning, Kendale family. It's good to be with you all. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me in John chapter eight. We'll be going through verses 21 through 59 today. And guys, I'm actually really excited that we're walking through a larger chunk of scripture uh, because sometimes if you zoom in too much, it's really hard to get like the big picture, right? If any of you have ever played the game called the zoomed in picture game, like I Googled that, that's actually what it's called, but maybe you didn't know that. You ever played that game, like the zoomed in picture game? And the challenge of the game is like, they, they zoom in so much on something that you really can't tell from the picture it's not easy at least, that as you're looking at this glossy white surface with like a crack and a screw, that what you're looking at is the tail of an airplane. Like that's, that's the trick of it because sometimes you just zoom in too much. And we can do the same thing when it comes to our Bibles. Like you could miss the fact that uh, what we're looking at today, these 38 verses that took Andrea over five minutes to read for us, that these verses bring to close a very tension-filled conversation that Jesus is having in the temple at the Festival of Shelters that actually starts back in John 7, verse 14, which for a little reference, we opened John 7 and taught that on November 22nd. <laughs> so when you do bite-sized chunks and you add Advent in there, you can kind of lose sight of the fact, like the, the big picture, you zoom in too much, you miss the big picture, that this conversation has been going on for a while. It's very tense. In fact, it starts with John 7, 14 says this, that when the festival was already half over, Jesus went into the temple and began to teach. If you wanna just keep your finger there, he goes into the temple there. Now read John 8, 59, just kind of flip the page. It might even be two pages in some of your Bibles. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple in the temple, out the temple, and everything that happens in there is part of this very tense conversation. Very tense conversation. 
Now today, as we navigate 38 verses, I don't want you to get lost. So what I'm going to give you is just three mile markers to kind of like see where we are as we're working through the text, kind of like uh, key points and, and moments in this text is like, take note of that. So the first mile marker to take note of as we walk through this text is in verse 25, they're going to ask a great question of Jesus. Who are you? Okay. It's verse 25. That's mile marker number one. Mile marker number two is verses 30 through 32, where it says that many believed in Jesus and he begins and turns his attention like squarely to them and he just talks to them. And then mile marker number three, just as the close, they pick up stones to stone him to death. And the heaviest question that we need to ask this morning is what did Jesus say that made new believers in 17 verses go from wanting to follow him to wanting to stone him? That's a significant question for us to ask today. And so we'll dive in and look at mile marker number one, who are you? So our passage begins in verse 21. It says, then he said to them again, then he, that's Jesus, said to them again, take notice of the word again, right? This is part of a larger conversation. He's already said this essentially before. I am going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. And this is like deja vu, total deja vu, because it says in verse 22, and they said again, I mean, their response is still the exact same as it was the last time that he said this back in John 7, verses 33 to 35. You can read the same interaction. He said this once before, they are completely confused. <laughs> but this time I noticed something different between when he had spoke these words earlier. In John 7, 33 through 35, he says, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. And he says it again here, but he adds an additional phrase. And it probably wouldn't have caught my attention if it wasn't for the fact that he not only says it once, he actually says it three times in three verses. He says it once in verse 21, twice in verse 24. It's this phrase, and you will die in your sins. I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come, and you will die in your sins. This is verse 24, chapter 8, 24. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And it's at this moment then that they ask the question. Mile marker number one, who are you? And his response to them is exactly what I've been telling you already. And I want to pause here because I think, I think we can sometimes be tempted to believe that maybe Jesus hasn't been abundantly clear for them. And if you're in that camp, that's like, I really wish he would just come out and say it. Um, let's just do like a quick review. Go back to chapter five. I just want to look at some of the words that Jesus has spoken about himself, just to highlight this point of clarity. Because when they ask the question, like, who are you? There's bigger issues going on than just purely as Jesus being clear, right? Chapter 5, verse 21. This is just after Jesus has healed a man who has been disabled for 38 years, and it was on the Sabbath, and everybody's all worked up about it. And so Jesus speaks to the Jewish crowd, and he says this, verse 21, that just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
And key verse here, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. You maybe want to underline verse 24. But he continues in verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. That seems pretty clear, right? Jesus seems pretty clear as he's speaking to these Jewish masses, but there's more. In chapter six, you wanna flip forward just a bit. This is a day after Jesus has just fed the masses with five barley loaves and two fish and everybody's astounded by that. And he says in verse 27, Chapter six, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the son of man will give you because God the father has set his seal of approval on him. Well, what can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one that he sent. And he continues in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread that God, the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. If you want to underline that, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. He's being clear, right? Seems pretty clear, but there's more. Remember last week, John 8, 12, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The issue here when they ask the question, who are you, is not a lack of clarity on Jesus's part. It's a disconnect between what's going on here and what needed to happen here. Which isn't just a problem for them, that's a problem for us. Rarely is our issue with God a lack of clarity at least in the American context that we live in, it's rarely for lack of clarity. It's just a disconnect between what's happening here and what's going on here. And so they asked the question, who are you? He says, exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning. But he continues on verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge about, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who has sent me is with me and he has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. And now we get to mile marker number two. Verse 30. Because it says that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he's saying those things, many believed in him. Now, I just want to pause here quick. I'm not naturally a very skeptical person. I, I'm actually one of those that's like an optimist that would rather be taken advantage of, be gullible, believing the best, all those types of things. But if John has taught us anything at this point, it's that when we see a phrase like that, that many believed, we should pause and ask the question, is this genuine faith? Because maybe you'd recall back in John 2, verses 24 and 25, 
it says that Jesus performed a bunch of miracles and those who are watching it began to believe in him. And it says after that, that Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. And so when we get to a text like this, we have to ask this question, is this faith genuine? And I remember when Jake taught John 2, this line just stuck in my mind. Maybe you remember it. But what John 2 reminded us is that there's a type of faith that Jesus doesn't trust. It's a type of faith that Jesus doesn't trust. And so what kind of faith is this? I'm going to be incredibly blunt. I have spent over a month in this text, and I'm just going to be incredibly blunt with this point. I have absolutely no idea what they believed when it says that they believed. Like, I have absolutely no idea what they believed when it says that they believed. Let me just highlight some of the things as you walk through this that I believe like this, this passage highlights are things that they don't believe. This is what they don't believe. They don't believe that they are enslaved to sin. They don't believe that they are under Satan's leadership. And they don't believe that they're going to die in their sin. Number four, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus' words are the only way to life. And they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God. Those are all the things that if you read this text, they don't believe. That's why when I look at this, I've, I've spent over a month trying to figure out like what that actually meant when it said that they believed. I'm like, what did they actually believe? I have no idea when it says that they believed what they actually believed. And as interesting as I was thinking about that and kind of just reviewing my notes, this thought hit me. And I'll just be honest here, guys. I have no idea what American Christians mean when they say, I believe in Jesus. Like, I don't think they're like the, the worlds are that different. When we cross from their town to our town, I don't think the context that we live in here is much different. There's a survey done, there's actually two surveys done here in the past year, one by uh, Dr. George Barna with the Cultural Resource, Resource uh, Center and uh, another by Ligonier Ministries. And I'm just gonna share with you some of the findings they found just of like in 2020, the state of American Christianity and like the beliefs of, of America. I found these to be pretty revealing to prove this point. First off, here's what they found. They found number one, that a vast majority of Americans still claim to be Christian. Maybe some of you are surprised by that, but 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. Here's what's interesting, same crowd, 77% of Americans also believe that right and wrong are determined by something other than the Bible. That 56% of that same crowd would say that they are consciously and consistently attempting to avoid sinning because they know that it offend God, which means there's a good majority of people that claim to be Christians that don't give a rip about if it offends God or not when it comes to their sin. Of that same crowd, 70% of whom will call themselves Christians, of the same crowd, 52% of all Americans believe that Jesus was just a good teacher and nothing more. And most amazingly, this was in both studies, they found this to be true, was that among Christians, 
not talking about everybody else. I'm just talking about like people who claim to be Christians that 52% believe that the reason they're going to heaven is because they can earn God's approval. Because we live in a culture where like the statement, I believe in Jesus means almost nothing. And it makes you just wanna ask the question, like let me flip this back around. When you say, I believe in Jesus, what does that mean? What does your I believe in Jesus statement actually mean for your life? Has that belief in Jesus translated to anything else? Maybe you'd point back to some key point in your life and say, yes, I I put my faith in Jesus on that day. I, I prayed a prayer. Well, at that point then, is there a marked difference in who you are? Are things happening in your life that that only could be explained by just the sovereign and supernatural working of God in your life through the power of the Spirit? Or, if you're honest, is there really no difference between you and everybody else? Now, here's the gift of John chapter 8. Because if John 2 highlighted for us that there's a type of faith that Jesus doesn't trust, John 8 highlights for us, there is a type of faith that Jesus does trust. Because those who had believed in him, look at verses 31 and 32 with me, because those who believed in him, he, he turns them. I can't even imagine like the intensity of his gaze at them at this point. And he says this, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's meant to be the distinguishing mark between genuine faith and everything else is that we would continue in God's word. Let me just ask you, when it comes to God's word, like what role does this play in your life? Is this a a paperweight for you? Is it decorative? Is this the book that you read after you read all of the other books that you wanna read? What, what is this book for you? Because the mark of genuine faith is a person who the word is continues and not only like believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but matches that then with an ongoing walk in that truth, not letting it go. Some of your Bible translations actually, instead of using the word continue, will have the word abide. The word abide is such a a, a beautiful word, but here's just a a picture to put in your mind as far as like what abiding looks like. Abiding is what a child does when they're on a parent's shoulder and they're scared. It's like the way that they cling to their parent's shoulder when they're terrified of something. Get that picture in your mind? Right, parents, maybe you felt that before when your child is scared, you can feel their fingernails digging into your bicep. You can feel their legs even crawling up your side. They're like, they're trying to get higher somehow. I'm not very tall, so I don't know where they're trying to go. <laughs> but the, the, the picture of clinging is what we're called to as Christians, like to cling to the word of God in that same way, to cling to the promises of Christ in that same way. What role does God's word have in your life? Clearly, continue means that we should grow in knowledge, right? Because you can't love something you don't know. And so 
We should continue to grow in knowledge of the scriptures. But it's more than just that because the goal isn't just simply knowledge. It's that we would be conformed into the image of Christ, that as we look into Christ in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit now working in us, we are conformed and transformed into his image. So the goal of this continuing is knowledge and transformation. It's transformation. That's what marks genuine faith. Is that what marks your life? John and some of his other writings continues to drive this point home. And I think he makes it abundantly clear when you get into 1 John 2. Let me just read these words. He says, the man who says, I have come to know him, yet does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know. This is the defining mark of true faith. This is how we know that we are in him. Verse six, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. I read that because sometimes the Bible, you could argue is like, ah, it's not super clear and it's confusing. I pull that out because I think first John and John eight are pretty clear. It's pretty black and white. With Jesus, there's no halvesies. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. And what those around us are wanting to do, what you are even warring against in your own hearts is what you want is you want just enough Jesus to make you feel better about yourself, but not so much Jesus that he actually begins to change you or do any work in your life. Because at that point, then you got to hand over like the joystick of your life to somebody else and they now control how everything works. You're not ready for that. But you can't have it both ways. You can't. And what 1 John reminds us is that maybe you are able to fool those around you by your church attendance and that you look just right. And maybe you've been able to even like fool yourself. Oh yeah, I'm the real thing. But God knows. God knows what's true. God knows what's true. It's possible that today the best thing that could happen to you this morning is that you'd walk out of here and maybe for the first time ever go, I'm not a Christian. I, I know that's like super contrary to like Iowa nice where everybody's a Christian and most of us were born that way. Yeah, you were, you're maybe born in a church and born in a God-fearing home and born going to church, but that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. What does your I believe in Jesus actually mean? Let me put before you what it should mean for us. I always try to give you like verses that I think would be great for you to memorize, meditate on. Here's, here's one. Here's what I believe in Jesus is supposed to mean. Galatians 2.20. That I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in this body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We all seem hardwired to forget that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And we also want to minimize the cost. But I have to recognize if what I want is salvation, it is by faith alone and Christ alone. And what it costs is I have to die because I got to be crucified with Christ if I want to be raised with him and transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. Does that define who you are? Does Galatians 2.20 define who you are? Does it define us? So interestingly, as Jesus starts to assert himself in this crowd, and speaking to the believers, we find out very quickly where their actual confidence lies. If you were to ask them at that moment, like, if you stand before God today in judgment, why should he let you in? Their confidence, even in response to this, even after saying that they believed in Jesus, would not be Jesus. <laughs> they get pushed into a corner and, and their confidence comes out. Their confidence was in the fact that they were Abraham's children, physical descendants of Abraham who God had chosen and called apart and had bless his descendants. And it, it bears reminding, because it's abundantly clear here again, that the hardest people to save are the people who don't think they need to be saved. You've had conversations with people like that, right? The hardest people to save are the people who don't think they need saving. And so what Jesus does is he acknowledges, yeah, you are the physical descendants of Abraham. I'll give you that, but you are nothing like him. He says in verse 39, or they reply in verse 39, our father's Abraham. He says, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. And he'll explain in just a little bit that their father is not Abraham, it's Satan. But it's interesting, like the, the, the security blanket they were running to, the place of confidence they were running to, as far as this would be my confidence before God, is actually the leading evidence in judgment over them. Because here's what marked the life of Abraham. If you want to read about this guy, go back to Genesis 12 through 25. I've just spent some time, those of you who've been reading the 1002 reading plan, we just got through the life of Abraham. Amazing man of faith. He was 75 years old when God called him out and asked him to leave everything that he had known, the land he had known, the family that he had known, the household that he had known, all of his possessions that he had known for 75 years. God says, leave it and go someplace. Abraham goes, where? And he goes, I'm not telling you. And Abraham went, not even knowing where God was taking him, left it all at 75. And he went into a foreign land and lived as a foreigner and lived in a tent all of his life believing in God's promises. He even believed in his old age, in his 70s, 80s, 90s, even to 100 years old, that God would give him a son because God had said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he's like, man, who's ever heard of a dude my age having kids? But whatever. But he believed. And when God provided the son of promise, Genesis 22, you'll notice some parallels here. God gave him the, the son of promise and then tested him. And Abraham, by faith, put his son on an altar before God, his only son, son that he loved. Catch the parallels? And offered him on the altar. 
and put the knife over his body, ready to strike him dead like this is what God had wanted. And his thought the whole time is that, I know that God can do the impossible. I believe he can even raise my son from the dead after this whole thing. That's Hebrews 11. He's a man of faith. He willingly puts the knife over his son when God says stop. And he provides a ram. God provides. But God looked at Abraham in that. And like, now I know. I know how much you love me. And God blessed him. Abraham was so different from these people in this crowd. And what Jesus is trying to highlight is the differences, Abraham's sensitivity to the voice of God in his life. That's like one of the most beautiful things about Abraham is just his ongoing sensitivity to the voice of God in his life. And he wasn't perfect. If you also read through those accounts, you'll see a very flawed man. I think those are the two words that best define Abraham is faithful and flawed. Twice in his life, this man of boldness and courage, his courage left him and he lied about his wife and different things and not trusting God. He wasn't perfect. And that's what Jesus, like he's not celebrating here that Abraham was perfect. What he's celebrating here is a man who placed his faith in the promises of God and it looked like something in his life. And when he failed, he entrusted himself back to the faithful hands of God who was perfect. That's what faith looks like. That's what it looks like in the real world. That's why we call Abraham the father of faith. And Jesus is looking at these people. He's like, the fact that you are Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren and have his blood course into your veins means very little to me. They should be people marked by faith and a sensitivity to the voice of God like Abraham. But that wasn't them. That wasn't them. And they were placing their confidence in the wrong thing. The hardest people to save are the people who don't think they need saving. And again, we live in this world, this, this American Christian world where the statement, I believe in Jesus means almost nothing. Let me ask you now another question. Where is your confidence today? Like if you were to die today and go stand before the judgment seat of God and he's sitting there looking at you going, should I let you in to eternity with me or not? What would be your defense? What would you offer back to him as like, this is why, this is why. I talked to so many people that are like, well, I've, I've always been a Christian. Or, you know, I, I go to church or even their, their confidence and hope is like, I go to Candeo Church. <laughs> or it's like, I pray to prayer. Guys, realize none of those things, none of those things, none of those things are where you should be putting your confidence. Some prayer you prayed years ago, because I would ask you, what does that look like today? Genuine faith is an active thing. Is your life marked by a faith like Abraham's? Is it marked by movement? Is it marked by conformity? Is it marked by change? Or are you just lying to yourself? This is where Christianity and the 12-step program actually begin with the same first step. Step number one is admitting you have a problem. 
That's the best first step for coming to Christ. Admitting you have a problem. So Jesus is calling out this disparity and now I wanna move on to mile marker number three. Because Jesus is calling out this disparity and they can't handle it. In fact, this is when things get really tense. The gloves come off. People's moms start getting called into the argument and stuff here. Because like, no joke, they're angry because Jesus is questioning their lineage and their descendant, like where they came from or whatever. So they throw some pot shots at Jesus. Hey, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Wink, wink, virgin birth, right, Jesus? Like they're, like they're poking at that. Even they say here uh, in verse 48, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan, some half breed and, a, and have a demon? Like this is like the gloves come off. And I just wanna pick up in verse 51 and just read the rest of this text together. Jesus says, truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let me just pause for a second. Underline that phrase, like truly I tell you. In the original Greek, that, that phrase, truly I tell you, is literally amen, amen. You ever heard that word before? It's how we often close our prayers. Do you know why we say that at the close of our prayers? Amen means, common English here, I declare it to be so. Confident in Christ, I declare these things to be so that God will provide, he will do this, that he is glorious and magnificent. And so we close our prayers by saying, amen. Jesus is saying here, amen, amen. I declare it to be so. He has three phrases in here that he says this with. And right here, he's gonna say, I declare it to be so. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Those in Christ never die, ever. The time that he said it earlier was back in verse 34 when he said this, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Just put those side by side. I declare it to be so that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, but I declare it to be so that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And those are like two things to hold on to. Beautiful. And he's gonna say it one more time. You'll catch it here. Let me pick up in verse 52. Then the Jews said, now we know that you have a demon. Because Abraham died and so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father about whom you say, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. And you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but you do know him but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews replied, you aren't even 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, amen, amen. I declare it to be so. Before Abraham was, I am. Those two words together are incredibly purposeful. I am. And everybody there knew it. And maybe we don't. So I'll explain it real quick. When God called Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and lead my people out of slavery into the land that I've called them into. Moses responded at one point. He goes, God, when I go there and tell them that you sent me, who should I say sent me? Give me a name. 
And the response was, tell them I am sent you. And now standing in this moment, the same God who sent Moses into Egypt to lead his people out of slavery now stands before them and he's not delegating this rescue mission off to anybody else. Now the I am is standing right before them, entered into a broken world to lead people out of slavery to sin into true freedom. Same God now stands before them. Again, the issue here is not a lack of clarity. It's just a disconnect between what's going on here and what needs to happen here. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. It was just all too much for him. It's too much change, too big of a shot to their ego or something like that. And it wasn't enough for them to just ignore Jesus. They had to kill him. And I love this line, you know, as Jesus sneaks out of the temple, they wanted to kill him, but, but couldn't. I always love this line. It's Henry Martin that said this. He said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. I love that. It's so tough. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. It's true for us. And it's true for Jesus. His mission wasn't over yet. They wanted to kill him. Supernaturally, God hides him. He sneaks out of the temple, no problem. We know where this is headed, but God's work for him to do at this point was not done. But church, as we sit reflecting on this encounter with Jesus in John 8, one thing has to become incredibly clear to us. That Jesus is building his church and it isn't for the masses of shallow converts. Jesus was never about the masses of shallow converts. That's not his game. That's not the way that he rolls. That's not what new life in him looks like. He wants to see new creation work. He wants to see total change. He wants to see active faith, faith that looks like something. He's looking for genuine followers, a people marked by a sensitivity to his voice. What role does this have in your life? And he wants a people that are gonna be marked by faith. When you say that you believe in Jesus, does it mean anything? What does it look like? And he wants a people who are marked by a simple confidence, a simple confidence. That at the end of the day, guys, I'm not confident before the Lord and my hope isn't in the fact that I go to church a lot. That didn't work. It's not in the fact that I'm from Iowa and we're all Christians from birth, right? It's not that either. Because my confidence before the Lord is that I've been set free and made new by faith in Jesus. And that faith has changed everything about me. And that faith is meant to change everything about every one of us who claim to believe in Jesus. Guys, let me pray. Yeah, Jesus, your word is truth. And it cuts 
living and active and it cuts, dividing even joints and marrow, it cuts to the inner places. God, you, you expose us. Every time we open the word, you expose us and lay us bare. And yet what it causes, if my pride will allow it, for me to be humbled and for you to be glorified. And God, what I ask is that you would do genuine work in us. That by the working of your spirit, it would be you that would soften our hearts and give us ears that don't just hear, but actually listen. And that as your word penetrates deep into our souls, I got it would bear genuine fruit. By the work of your spirit, we would be conformed into the image of your son, bringing him more and more glory, God. If we want to have uncommon impact in this world, we have to be an uncommon people. A city on a hill cannot be a city on a hill and a light to all the dark places if it's as dark as the rest of the world. And so God, I pray that we will live up to our namesake. Like Kandeo means to grow and to shine in brilliance. That God, you would do something unique among us here that would go out from here. An uncommon work, but a work that you love to do again and again. God, do that work in me and in all of us for your glory. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.